Welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Why women? On my show, Why Women, we talk about issues and concerns that are facing women. I myself am a social psychologist that runs an advertising and marketing firm, but I'm also an advocate for women. And this show is an opportunity to share practical tips and insights that can help all of us become better people. I focus on helping women lead and achieve. And I like to talk about issues that are timely and sometimes a little difficult to talk about. On today's show, we're going to have Dr. Judy Ho. She is a triple board certified clinician, forensic neuropsychologist, and pediatric neuropsychologist. She's also a media commentator and an author. One of the books I prefer to read and often recommend to others is Stop Self-Sabotage. That's right, Stop Self-Sabotage with some practical tips in it. And it's things we do to ourselves that we don't even realize that are sabotaging our level of success. But today we're going to focus on younger people and the after effects of the pandemic. We are in May 2022, and we are seeing the pandemic turn more to an endemic. But at the same time, there are consequences as a result of the isolation and the other terrible factors that impacted the United States in particular. I'm going to start with uh, public health researchers saying that the biggest depression risk for American adults include having low income and being unmarried. And this comes from a study that was highlighted by in research from the Boston University School of Public Health. They revealed that the elevated rate of depression in the United States has persisted into 2021. We saw it earlier, 2019 and 20. And now it's even gotten worse. It's climbed to 32.8%. That means depression affects about one in every three American adults. So we're going to talk about what that means for all of us and get some practical advice from Dr. Judy Ho. Dr. Ho, welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Thanks, Dr. Renee. It's so great to be with you today. Lovely to be with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this phenomena of depression. I think they, they indicated in the study that the most significant predictors for someone expressing or experiencing depressive symptoms during the pandemic were not being married, having a low income, and uh, having a lot of stressors in their lives. I think this really shows us the link between the pandemic and the long and short-term impact. What what advice do you give to people if they have these stressors in their life and they be headed in the direction of depression? Well, those statistics are very interesting, also very alarming, but also I think probably a lot of people, a lot of your listeners are hearing themselves in those statistics. You know, yeah, sometimes I do feel, you know, maybe not as connected to a community or perhaps I have a lot of stressors in my life. There's just so much going on. I feel like I never have a chance to breathe. And I think that those are common experiences for people, especially in these past couple of years. And the biggest thing to know is that early identification really is key. Um, There's a lot you can actually do to help yourself. um, Even before you visit a doctor's office, a mental health professional, Uh, And a lot of it has to do with managing your emotions, managing 
the frustrations that come along and managing your stressors more effectively. Now, obviously, that's easier said than done. But a big part of this is allowing your mind and body to have that resting place. So many of us are just going all the time. The stressors pile on top of one another. You're always in a fight or flight mode. And our bodies and brains are not designed to be in that fight or flight mode long term. You know, short term, it's great for our survival, but long term causes stress, causes chronic physical issues and mental health issues. And so really finding time every single day to cultivate some joy, take a break, you know, even if it's just 20 to 30 minutes, being really intentional about having a daily self-care regime is key. I like that idea. I mean, we hear a lot about self-care, and I think many of us think, well, that's, uh, you know, going to a spa or it's, uh, uh, you know, having some kind of a special event that's all about yourself getting away from your family. What I hear you saying is having 20 minutes or a half hour where you calm yourself down, where you think about joy or you put yourself in a joyful moment is another way to be have an antidote. Is that what you're saying? It's something you have to make as kind of a part of a ritual of every day. Absolutely. And of course, everybody says, well, I don't have time. I'm busy. This is uh, this is why I have the problem I have in the first place. I just don't have time for that. But, Mm. you know, everybody has 15 to 20 minutes. You just need to be able to intentionally carve that out. Now, for some people, that means the first thing in the morning. That's when they have the most time. Or it could be the last thing you do before you go to bed. But Mm -hmm. really, it's about intentionally carving out those 15 to 20 minutes to do some of the things that you just said, you know, to to calm your nervous system down, um, to take it out of that fight or flight mode, to get into that restoration phase where your body can relax, your mind can relax, and you take it one step at a time. One of my favorite things that I like to talk about with my clients is trying to find practical mindfulness in their life. Hmm. So what that means is, you know, mindfulness is not, you know, crossing your legs and meditating for everybody. Mindfulness can be very practical. It could be taking a five minute mindful walk down your street. It could be mindfully making coffee because, you know, you're going to drink coffee anyway. So making that a ritual where you're just doing that. Not always talking on the phone, too. Not also doing your to-do list, right? Just making the coffee and letting yourself enjoy it for those 10, 15 minutes. I love that. I think it's important for people to know they can do that and build it. Let me tell you two kind of funny examples for people that I know. One woman has a bathroom in the house that the kids are not allowed to enter. The husband doesn't enter. And she gives herself a warm bath every night and lights a candle. It sounds very romantic, but it's not romantic for her. It's (laughs) it's a calming and it's a settling of her nervous system. Like you said, it takes it down a notch. It gives her a chance to just reflect and breathe. And then another friend of mine, she, she sits on the toilet <laughs> She, when she's in the bathroom or she'll take a break from a meeting and just, and uh, you know, put the lid down and just sit there quietly and think about joyful, positive things. So I guess you have to find it any way you can in your life, right? Absolutely. And those are some great examples of things that people may not think, oh, well, this is actually a form of mental health, but it is. It's a form of taking care of your mental wellness in whatever way you can. And I love the idea of, you know, just making a nice bath for yourself. My husband loves baths. I'm not as much of a bath person, but he loves them. And so he does that once every week, you know, just takes a nice bath, 
relaxes and, you know, that's his own time. That's his time where he can really just get away and have that moment of rest. Well, the good thing is, too, that your husband lets you know. I think women, we don't, <laughs> we don't often like to tell other people that we need this, but it's all right to have that 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And, you know, the five-year-old can be told, okay, it's time for playing with your toys or your books and mommy's going to have her, her quiet time because uh, uh, you have to ask and tell people that you're doing it. Otherwise, they unintentionally interrupt you, I think. Exactly. And I think that's what some people feel bad about doing. They don't want to, you know, while that sounds selfish, you know, I'm asking for this time, but it's not selfish because even for those of, of us who are givers, who want to do so much for the world, how can you give if you have nothing left in your own tank? So you have to refill first before you can give that to That's a good point. I like that analogy of the tank because you have a, a, a tank of uh, calmness and positive attitude and uh, kindness that you share with others and you have to replenish it inside yourself. You're right. Now, unfortunately, some of the stress that uh, are talked about in this Boston University study are things that are difficult to overcome. Low pay, the death of a loved one from Mm COVID-19. There can be these very serious life experiences that cause toxic stress in your life. And that's a much harder thing to counter, which is self-care. What advice would you give to folks who've experienced those? Well, I think one of the things that is really helpful during these moments is to remember, even though I think when people are going through them, they're going to feel very isolated, is that you are not going through this alone. So one example is any kind of grief where you lose somebody. Uh, That's a very common emotion that everyone's going to go through at some point in their life. It's universal. Uh, COVID pandemic related losses and stressors. That's obviously universal. We're going through a community wide crisis in many ways, and it's not really let up very often. You know, we have these moments where, you know, COVID rates seems to go down and all of a sudden they're back up again. And so it's this continued stressor that everybody can say, yeah, I've been impacted by COVID. And I think even when serious things happen, um, you know, the prevention of it, the self-care is so important. But I think another thing that's really important is really leaning into your sense of community. There's a lot of research that shows that if people feel isolated, if they feel like they're withdrawing when they have these problems, which a lot of people do, they kind of want to go into their own little corner. They don't want to see the negative Nancy, so they don't talk to anyone. But that actually makes the problem worse. It's really important to feel a sense of connectedness with other people. And it doesn't have to be a lot of people. It could just be a couple people, but you need to feel like you belong. You need to feel like your experience is not your own unique experience where nobody can ever empathize with you. And so it's during these times that we have to challenge ourselves to reach out more, um, Good to advice. find that community, whether it's virtual or within your own family, good or your advice. own microsystem. Yeah, very good advice. I think a lot of people turn to church when they're in those kinds of situations, yes. and there's a faith community that you can be a part of. We're going to put mm-hmm. a pause on this, Dr. Ho, for just a moment. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Why women? And we're talking about the consequences of the pandemic in terms of mental health depression and next we're going to talk about high school students in a recent survey 37 percent of u.s high school students reported regular mental health struggles let's figure out why and ask dr judy ho a neuropsychologist why this is happening and what we can do about it stay tuned to the dr renee frazier show
Welcome back to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Today, we're talking with Dr. Judy Ho about some of the issues we're seeing in women and men related to the pandemic. Unfortunately, there's been an increase in depression and even more disturbing young people are suffering from it. In a recent CDC survey that was quoted in April of 2022, 37% of high school students in the U.S. reported regular mental health struggles during COVID-19. Overall, these were students from public and private high schools reporting that their mental health was not good most of the time or all of the time during the pandemic. And unfortunately, we see that playing out with different segments even more seriously. Dr. Ho, let's talk about this. Why do you think children were so dramatically affected by the pandemic? Well, for children of all ages, whether younger children or children who are getting ready to be young adults, so much of these milestones happen during these youth years, you know, whether it's graduating elementary school, starting junior high, going to high school, going to prom, having your graduations, getting ready for college. All of these things are very, very important. And in some ways, because COVID has been so rampant, there's been a lot of changes to the way those milestones are experienced. And so for me, when I think back to those pivotal moments in my youth years, you know, I have very significant memories about them. You know, I remember going to prom. I remember graduating high school. I remember the first day of college. All of these things have shifted during COVID where, you know, sometimes there's no graduation at all. Sometimes there's a virtual graduation. And so I think that's really difficult. And also adding to the time of of development for children and teens. This is a time that they're really learning who they are, getting mm-hmm. um, in touch with their identity, you know, understanding how to cultivate social relationships and use social interactions in a pro-social way. And in some ways, COVID has maybe delayed the experience of some of those skill sets and those types of experiences that we tend to have during this time that are so pivotal to even our adult lives and how we think about ourselves as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why the, the, you know, the youth generation has really had a difficult time with this. And then, of course, they're falling back more towards social media for community, which right. is not their fault. It's like, that's what's there. Right. But we also know that social media, for all of its advantages, has a number of disadvantages. We know that the longer time people spend on social media, the more prone they are to have lower self-esteem right. and maybe increased depression and anxiety. And so... You know, you think about that and how that compounds the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about social media in a moment. I I want to reference what this is for the parents that are listening, the way these questions have been asked, because it may be something a parent can use. Uh, in, in, this, in the survey, they asked in the last 12 months, have you felt sad or hopeless almost every day or at least two weeks in a row? Now, you wouldn't say that whole sentence to your child, but are you feeling sad? Are you feeling hopeless? And what I think is that that's also a function of what you just said a moment ago about these events. There was an expectation. Oh, it's going to be my senior year. Oh, it's going to be my junior year. I get to go to prom. This is going to be my time to shine. And then it's taken away. So there is that sense of sadness, right? And what can I hope for? And those are the the attributes that we're talking about that. That was 44% that said in the previous 12 months, they'd felt that for at least two weeks. And when we talked about the mental health during the period of uh, COVID, I was surprised to see among girls, it was 49 
29% having mental health issues, and boys, it was 24. So twice as frequent for girls. What's going on with our young high school girls? Well, this is a really important statistic, and we actually have been seeing increasing rates of depression and anxiety among girls for a number of years, even before COVID. And then COVID kind of changed the slope of that. It kind of escalated it even further. There's a couple of reasons why I think um, females are especially susceptible at this stage. One, I think there is just more of a proneness for uh, our girls to use social comparison um, in a way that feels very, very significant, even more so than boys. I mean, boys definitely compare themselves to one another also, all human beings do. But with women and with young girls, the pressures of media images, what you're supposed to look like, you know, there's a different type of pressure on girls than there are on boys, even when you look at people who are aspiring in the Mm -hmm. news. You know, when you look at women who are aspiring, they're attractive, you know, maybe there's a certain weight range. With men, there's actually more of a diversity in terms of successful men and what they might look like. Right. So body image is a big part of this for girls. Secondly, I do think that there's a little bit more of a reporting bias as well because girls are more prone to talk about their feelings and they're more prone to say things like, I feel sad. Boys, even the ones who are, you know, a little bit more in touch with how they how they feel and what their emotions are, in general, what we see is that boys, when they have emotional discomfort, they're more prone to complain about physical ailments, like my stomach hurts, my head hurts. That actually is their way of saying I'm anxious, but they don't have those words. And culturally, they're not really primed for that type of conversation either. So I do think that maybe the boys' rates are a little underreported for that reason. Good point. Good point. I think you're right. And I think uh, there is a difference in the the willingness to talk about these. You know, just going back to the data point that I mentioned, uh, the question about feeling sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more weeks in a row, that was 57% of girls and 31% of boys. So still showing the difference that you talked about. Two things I was going to mention, too, with young men, I think there's sometimes a uh, competition in sports, right, and in physical activities, not as much in physical appearance. So that's one difference. Right. And, you know, this notion of talking about it and showing emotion, uh, there's interesting research that shows when men are talking intimately to other men about issues, they tend to stand side by side and face out. You'll see that at a sporting game where two men will be talking and they'll often have their feet in a sideways fashion, but they're not facing each other. They're tilted toward the front, Mm -hmm. whereas women, of course, tend to look eye to eye. And we know that women very quickly go to revealing things about themselves and building building camaraderie and and connection. So there are these differences in, in, in bias. You're absolutely right. What do you think we should be talking to our girls about? given the circumstances and these data? I think it's really important for girls to understand that there's a lot that they can do to improve their own self-esteem. I think that sometimes you're looking outwards at that time for self-esteem. You're looking for other people to validate you. You don't feel good about yourself unless somebody tells you that you're okay. And again, this is especially heightened during the teenage years, because you're just trying to understand how to identify yourself. But if we can give our girls more resiliency skills and help them understand that self-esteem can be built from within, Mm -hmm. um, that can be a really important piece of it because you can't predict how people are going to treat you. You can't predict what 
kinds of experiences you're going to have on a daily uh, basis. But if you can have self-esteem that's built from the ground up by yourself and it resides within yourself, even if you have a bad day, you can still feel good about who you are. And I think that's a really important thing, important message for our girls. As parents, another important. can mm-hmm. I just uh, as parents, that means probably I have a 10 year old in my life. And when she comes back from school and I'm with her, I get a chance to say, uh, I love the way you were so strong about getting that work done today, even though there were all those pressures and all the kids wanted to go outside. Boy, you showed some real determination, something inside, right? A characteristic of hers that I admire. Because um, I think they sometimes they need to be patted on the back, not for their physical appearance, but for their internal qualities and characteristics. Can you, any any thoughts about that and other tips we as parents, so we can trigger that or let, let our girls know that we're seeing those qualities inside of them? I agree with you. I think that it's so important to compliment them on process, on their effort, rather than focusing on their attractiveness or their outside appearance. And so as parents, as teachers, I think we can all sort of notice that maybe sometimes we do that a little bit more with the girls in our lives, just because, again, it's kind of culturally the norm to compliment girls on, oh, you look so pretty today. That's a right. nice dress. Right. But, you know, let's try to balance that out with some of these other things that are more skill-based or effort-based. I also think that it's important for parents and teachers and anybody who has a young person in their life to set an example by talking to them in a way that makes them feel like they're not the only ones who have ever experienced this. And oh. so what I mean by this is parents can say, hey, I'm feeling stressed right now, too. And yes. here's how mommy deals with it. When, yes, uh, when yes. she's stressed. And it doesn't mean that it works every time, but here's something that I try to do to help calm myself down. I like that. I think it's hard for us sometimes to reveal ourselves to our children and admit our vulnerability. But boy, times have changed. Now is the time to be willing to share and being careful about it because you don't want to appear so needy that it overcomes what their needs are. I'm going to take a pause here. Dr. Judy Ho has been sharing with us great insights about how we can work with our children related to depression, mental illness, and sadness that so many of them are feeling. You're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women, as we talk about why women are unfortunately dealing more with depression and sadness and the emotional consequences from the pandemic. Uh, Just recently cited that we saw high school students, 37%, saying their mental health was not good. And sadly, double among young girls versus young boys. So let's listen to what we can do for our girls in our next segment. And you'll hear tips on how to regulate your nervous system in a better fashion from a neuroscientist. Stay tuned to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. And now you'll hear traffic and weather. Dr. Renee Frazier Show. I'm Renee Frazier, a social psychologist and advertising executive running Frazier Communications. But I love on this show talking about why women. And we're talking today about the higher levels of sadness and depression that we're seeing, particularly among 
teens, high school students, and sadly, at a higher rate among girls. We have an expert on our show, Dr. Judy Ho, who's a neuroscientist and, and a clinician and has studied these issues repeatedly and has some practical advice. Uh, Dr. Judy Ho, we were just talking about uh, the importance parent, the important role parents can play. And we talked about parents admitting they also feel sad. They also feel unhappy. And I suspect a corollary to that is for them to say, that's why I'm going to go out for a walk. That's why I think we should go, uh, you know, take a blankety blank walk or do a something or other, something as a self-care routine. Are the things you think that parents should do with their kids or at least offer to their kids as ways to try to pull them out of the sadness that might be coming as a result of the pandemic and the isolation? Oh, definitely. I think that, you know, this is a time to really lean into your close-knit community as much as possible. And with parents, there's so much you can do to bring your children in, um, to get them to be active, to get them to try new things, especially when they're still living under your roof. And really, you know, trying to surround these kinds of times with as much positivity as possible, not a lot of pressure. It's really just time to really be mindful, spend time without a bunch of distractions. I've recommended to families that they just institute, you know, dinner time the way that, you know, they really want, um, want it to be really, mm -hmm. for example, not having any devices at the table, um, everybody having dinner at the same time. Um, a lot of traditions that have gone to the wayside when we've gotten busy, you know, um, yes. those types of things really mean a lot to our kids. And, the bonus is the more that you are connected with your kids and the more of that, you know, parental monitoring there is, the more that is associated with all kinds of positive youth outcomes. One of my daughters has a routine at their dinner table that I love, and everybody has to talk about the rose of their day. One good thing that happened, and it could be that they, you know, they got to take a five-minute nap at their desk. It could be that they played with a certain friend at school. And then they talk about the thorn, the worst thing that happened. And the last is to talk about the blossom, what's growing that's going to be new, what's blooming on that rose. And that's what you're looking forward to the next day. Just allowing yourself to articulate and think about those things brings happiness into your brain, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I think that it's so important to be conscious of your blessings, of the things that to, to be grateful for. But also, it's okay to also say, hey, my day in review, what didn't go so well? And is there something that I could have done to help that go a little better next time? True. I think it's always important to kind of use that self-reflection and, and not be afraid to, to work towards improvement because most of us, we learn the most from difficult times. You know, we learn the most from when we've fallen down or made a mistake. And it's really about that bouncing back, that resiliency that really sets you apart and helps your mental wellness all around. Uh, true. I think as parents, one of the difficulties we have is allowing our kids to experience those things that aren't necessarily troubling. One of my, in one of my families, the girls are uh, transitioning to sixth grade, so they have to interview and apply to schools. And boy, that's hard. Yeah. You don't get accepted every place you get accepted some no. places right so there's a realization that maybe you're not perfect and you're not the best even i think most of our kids we like to believe they are but obviously when you're when you're comparing they're going to be there are going to be challenges, and sometimes it just isn't the right fit how, how do you deal with right. those kinds of experiences as, as a good parent I think it can be really hard sometimes when you're not sure um, exactly what to do or what to say and if something is even the right fit. And I think this is when it's important to bring your kid or your teen in for 
more of a conversation where they can help with the problem solving. They can understand it at an age appropriate level. And sometimes parents say, well, isn't it important that essentially I model that problem solving for my child or maybe at some point I make those decisions. And of course, the big decisions is obviously is still going to be you're the person who's going to make that decision. But as kids get older, especially, it's important to bring them into the conversation, let them know your decision-making process, what you're thinking about, what things are troubling you, where you're getting stuck on. You know, all of that's helpful because they're learning, they're absorbing everything as they're watching you. And the more that you get them to participate, the more engaged that they are, and the more they get to practice that problem solving too on their own. That's a good idea. I know one of the most obvious and probably the, probably a good way to do it is let's make a list of pros and cons, right? What are all mm-hmm. the good things? And then it's both people making the list and that, that task of just writing them down and being conscious and intentional about it, I think is, a, is an important part of the exercise. I, I love that word Absolutely. model problem solving. I don't, sometimes we jump right into it and we forget the fact that we actually are modeling for our kids. Now, before I forget, we talked a little bit about social media. That's one of the places maybe our modeling goes a little the wrong way, would you say, as most of us are glued <laughs> to our phones? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Even as us adults, you know, we do it ourselves. You know, sometimes we're watching TV at the same time. We're still on our phone doing something, too, instead of just enjoying whatever is on the TV in front of us. And so I think, yep, the modeling does have to start there. You have to start to, you know, maybe limit your own social media time. You might have to limit the way that you talk about your own body image issues if there are any, Um, you know, the way that we speak in front of our youngsters they are watching and they are taking all of that in. And some of the younger people that I've treated for things like eating disorders, they'll tell me things like, well, I've seen my parents talk, you know, very negatively about their own bodies. Mm -hmm. They're always on crash diets. And then that's why they learn some of this um, at an early age. And so I do think that setting a good example is important. And if you feel like there's some place that you're getting stuck, maybe you're struggling with depression or anxiety yourself, it's great for you to go work that out, maybe see a professional, get some counseling um, so that you can be more equipped to help your children with those problems if they come up. And also so that you can speak to the fact that this is an issue that I experienced and here's one of the ways that I tried to solve the problem. Yes, exactly. I think letting people know there's nothing wrong with talking to a counselor or a clinician, seeing an advisor. Uh, it, it shows that you're vulnerable and it shows that it's an acceptable way to get feedback. I think it's a, a great idea for people to mention therapy and to talk about it. it. When I was growing up, it was kind of a hush-hush. You didn't mention it. Now, I think it's very right. common as it should be, right? And it's uh, there's no stigma. Is that correct? Yeah, I think the stigma is definitely so much better than it was years ago. But I do find that stigma is still pretty prevalent, especially in certain populations, maybe among certain cultures. And so I think we still have some work to do, but it has gotten so much better. And so much of this is through normalization. You know, talk about mental health, like let that be the dialogue. It's okay to talk about it. And it's also okay to talk about I have a therapist appointment, you know, saying that with the same kind of conviction as you would if you had a doctor's appointment. You know, it's, it's 
the same kind of thing. You're still working on yourself, your physical and your mental health, and they shouldn't feel so different. But for a lot of people, it does. It's like they're not embarrassed to go to their physician for a yearly checkup, but they're really embarrassed to say that they're going to counseling. It's a really good point. We should be able to openly talk about it. Yeah, I don't want to forget that when I looked at that Pew study that I spoke of a moment ago where we saw the sadness and depression, I want to highlight the fact for our listeners that unfortunately it's even higher. This is for youth. These were for high school students across the United States. That's even higher for LGBTQ students. About 55% said they experienced poor mental health at least most of the time in the 30 days before the survey. And uh, so we do see that uh, there's a higher rate. That that number that I said, 55%, was almost was more than twice what it was for heterosexual teens, saying 26%. Why are we seeing our lesbian and gay young people struggling even more than the heterosexual ones, Dr. Ho? Well, you know, this particular group, they have essentially been marginalized in a lot of different ways. Um, They are not in the mainstream in terms of their sexual identity, in terms of their sexual preference. Um, Oftentimes, they've been picked on at a young age for being different. Um, They are more prone to bullying and cyberbullying. Um, they tend to be more distracted at school because, again, they're kind of fearful of what are people going to do if they find out that I'm different and it makes it harder for them to focus on academics. So for all of these reasons, they're more at risk for mental health problems. Um, And I think this feeling of isolation, being so different where no one can understand you, and depending on where you grew up and who you're around, for some of these individuals, it's very, very real that they are alone. That's um, right. They may be the only person in their school who might be transgender or and, identify as gay. That's right. So they don't see others as a role model, other people being happy and accepted. And that is a serious right. problem. I want us to close the show. This is Dr. Judy Ho with a, a section on how we can make ourselves happier. And uh, Dr. Ho has recently reading, written a piece called Five Ways to Regulate Your Nervous System. I want to talk about that and learn so I can calm myself down. I I can certainly feel the anxiety rising at certain points and I have to figure out how do I how do I contain that. I've tried to learn how to manage my metabolism. Now, how do I manage my nervous system? You're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier show as we talk about anxiety, depression, and the consequences of the pandemic. We focused on younger people and high school students, and now we'll talk more about adults with Dr. Judy Ho. Stay tuned to the Dr. Renee Frazier show. Show. I'm 
Dr. Renee Frazier, the social psychologist and advertising entrepreneur. I'm talking with Dr. Judy Ho, licensed and triple board certified clinical and forensic neuropsychologist and the author of Stop Self-Sabotage, one of my favorite books. Uh, Dr. Ho is going to be talking us to, to us now about the nervous system. You know, many of us have struggled with stress, poor sleep, traumatic events, uh, depression, anxiety, frustration. I was saying before we took the break that I have anxiety. If there's a very important new business pitch we've made, I'm counting on that as a, as a part of how we grow this year. And I'm entirely consumed by the anxiety late at night and in the evening when I think about it. And I've got to manage that better. I can tell it's upsetting me. Uh, Dr. Ho, can you talk about this problem we have with anxiety and and why it changes our nervous system so much well anxiety is an interesting phenomenon it's mostly predicated on this anticipatory fear so it's about something that hasn't happened but you're afraid it's going to happen and then your mind goes to all of the what if mm-hmm. and your mind is just boundless it's infinite so if you let it run it can run through literally all the different permutations of what could happen But, you know, when we are stressed, we're more prone to rehearse over and over again the worst case scenarios rather than, you know, also some of the best case scenarios or maybe the ones that are in between. And that's what anxiety is. It's about fearing that worst case scenario and spending so much time concerned about it when actually none of it has happened yet. And it may not ever happen. Right. Unfortunately, anxiety is, is, as you said, the expectation. And I think when you start to think about it, it even trains the mind to look for cues that are negative. So when, I, when I'm in this state, I, I do my breathing exercises as a way to try to calm my, my nervous system down. But what do, what do you recommend? Why, how are ways we can better control our nervous systems and the regulation of them? Yes. And, you know, regulating our nervous system is so important because, again, if we don't regulate it, then we're letting that fight or flight just take over all the time. And when it's that chronic, it actually does have delirious effects on both your mental and your physical wellness. And so one of the ways in which you can calm, calm yourself down is the breathing. That's absolutely great. I like to do box breathing, which means that you're essentially tracing a box in front of you and you're counting to four while you're tracing up one side of the box and holding your breath for four while you trace you know, the second side, then breathe out as you trace the third side. And then to close the box and trace the fourth side, you hold again. And you just repeat this a few times. What this teaches your brain is that everything is fine. You know, even without having to tell yourself everything is fine, doing this biological breathing mechanism, your body is going to tell your mind everything is okay. Because if you were truly in a fight or flight situation, you would not be able to deep breathe. You would be hyperventilating a little bit Mm -hmm. because you're trying to, you know, get that Mm -hmm. blood flow to your muscles and run away from something. And so that is a really, really powerful technique. I love that you brought up breathing. But a couple of other techniques, one thing that we forget sometimes is that just because we had a thought doesn't mean that it's going to come true. But the way that language works, the first minute that we start thinking about something, we think that that our worst fear is already happening. And so even just writing down in front of you, thought does not equal truth. You know, just reading that to yourself, telling that to yourself when you have a negative thought. That can be really powerful in a quick way to regulate your nervous system. Like, oh, this isn't happening. This disaster that I'm imagining in my mind isn't the truth. It's just a thought. It's just a mental event that is happening does not mean that the actual thing that I'm thinking about or fearing is going to happen. 
Sometimes when people have negative thoughts for a long time, they don't know how to get rid of it. Even if they try mantras, they try positive thinking, it doesn't work. Um, I like a technique called labeling, which means that you're literally labeling the negative thought for what it is. So let's say you have a negative thought like, I'm never going to reach my goals. And, you know, you're thinking about this over and over. Just adding the sentence in front of it. I'm having the thought that. Ah. So now it becomes, I'm having the thought that I'm never going to reach my goals. And just notice how it takes the sails out of the wind a little bit of that original thought. Like now there's a distance to it. Now you're saying it was a thought as opposed to it's just something that's automatically true. Mm. And that distance is a really important distance that you need to be able to go on with your day, to let it not affect your emotions as much or your actions. That's really a good advice. I'm having the thought that. So you're labeling it as just that, just as a thought. And it's not the truth, like you just said a moment ago. It's not inevitable. All right, that's good. I've got these two pieces of advice so far. And I I noticed that when you talk about this physiological reaction, the fight or flight, you could talk about the nervous nervous system being dysregulated, not unregulated, but dysregulated. Does that mean like disarray? What does that mean, dysregulated? So dysregulated means that your nervous system, your brain, it's out of balance. Maybe there's uh, parts of the brain where it's overactive and that overactivity can cause certain things. And so, for example, when your amygdala is overactive, that means that emotions are going to feel a lot more overwhelming. You're going to be having a more higher startle reflex where maybe it's just a very mundane thing, but then you find yourself being jumpy and startled. Um, and that's signs of your, uh, your nervous system being dysregulated. It's like your brain is not working the way that it should perhaps. And maybe there's too much activity in certain areas or too little activity in other areas. Another area that tends to be very overactive when we're stressed and concerned is the frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. The frontal lobe, when it's working optimally, is a great thing. It's, you know, helps us plan, do the things that are uniquely human, um, solve problems. But if it's overactive, that's when we start to get into that obsessive thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, that would be another sign of your brain being dysregulated. And then another sign of your brain being dysregulated and probably the most prominent sign that people complain about is sleep disturbances. Um, when your brain is on overdrive, when you're contending with difficult emotions that you can't manage all day long, the next thing that is going to go is your sleep. You're going to have difficulty staying asleep, falling asleep, waking up too early. Um, and then you're going to be fatigued no matter how long you sleep. And that's just another sign that generally gets people to say, I need to do something about it because obviously the less you sleep well, the more dysregulated you become right. emotionally and brain-wise. It becomes a, vi- uh, a vicious cycle. I get it. The brain is on overdrive. So these active, yeah. intentional approaches to calming yourself down and calming your brain down are really important. I noticed, too, that you have the 30 to 90 second rule. When somebody experiences something new, um, that there's a biochemical and electrical surge that uh, lasts about 30 to 90 seconds when your unconscious and conscious mind is, is just adjusting and processing the income, incoming information. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So, you know, basically, I think sometimes people, when they have a new stimuli, um, it can be kind of startling. Um, and sometimes they, they start to become dysregulated right away. They, they see it as a threat. Right. Um, but you really don't need to. You can, you know, kind of essentially override this sort of uh, hardwired but sometimes misshapen uh, survival 
instinct and say, wait, let's give it a minute, you know, because anything novel feels frightening to our brains. And it should to some degree, because, you know, when we feel like we're masters of our own universes and we can control our environment, that's when we feel the safest. But, you know, sometimes new information doesn't have to be threatening, although the first inclination might be to interpret it as such. And so it's really about kind of giving yourself that time, giving yourself that 90 seconds, breathing through it, and then deciding what to do from there. If it's a true um, emergency, you're going to be able to know that and deal with it as it is. Like, for example, if you're in a burning building. You don't need to right. wait the 90 seconds. You're right. going to start running, right? right? Right. But anything that makes you feel like you're going to react, but you're not sure, maybe it's a little ambivalent, you know, giving yourself 10 deep breaths and then reassessing the situation again, a lot of times you'll realize, oh, this isn't actually frightening information. It's just new information. Right. And so then you start to get better at discerning what's truly, um, you know, an emergency and what is just new information that you might want to incorporate into your world. Well, that and I think like if you read about bad news or someone says something that you take mm-hmm. very personally or very you consider very rude and you just pause, as you're saying, and take the deep breaths, some of that emotionality gets reduced and there's a calmness in the way you process it, as you just said. And it comes to you as information rather than as that fight or flight fear reaction that you're having. What about also, okay, visualizing your emotions? Uh, Because our feelings can feel amplified, making it hard sometimes even to get a hold of them, right? Uh, What what would you recommend? How do we do that? When emotions are inside your head, um, they feel amorphous. They feel like they're going to go on forever and ever and ever. They're never going to stop. And... That's why it's so important to try to visualize your emotions, because if you can actually take them outside of your mind and put them into physical space as a concrete object, every concrete object um, in the world has a beginning and end. Even the Grand Canyon, as vast as it is, has a beginning and end. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to tell people to do is like identify the emotion that's bothering you. Maybe it's anger, sadness, frustration, and then try to imagine taking it outside of your body and putting it at the table in front of you and give it some, give it some definition, you know, observe it and take it in with your five senses, describe it. So people might say, okay, well, I feel anger and anger to me looks like a big black ball. It's like maybe the size of a bowling ball and it's like 20 pounds and it's really heavy. And when I touch it, it's rough to the touch. (laughs) And so I have them interact with this object, but this does two things. One, when you physicalize the object, you don't identify yourself with it, right? It's outside of your body. So it's not you, you know, sadness is not you. Anger is not you. It's something that is an emotion that is outside of you. It's not part of who you are. Right. But secondly, then you can manipulate the object and make it more manageable. So I tell people, okay, now try to visualize squeezing this bowling ball sized object down to the size of a marble, Ooh. right? And now that anger and that frustration, it seems so much easier to deal with because now it's in the palm of your hand and it's light. Um, and you have power over it. You are the one who can manage your emotions. Your emotions are not managing you. Great advice. Uh, that was just Dr. Judy Ho, who's a clinician and a neuropsychologist, giving us some really very good advice. Judy Ho is also the author of Stop Self-Sabotage, a great book to read to give you practical tips. I hope you've learned some practical tips for handling depression, anxiety we're seeing in our teenagers, as well as anxiety that we're seeing in ourselves. And the sad times that some of us have had to go through as a result of the pandemic. Don't forget to make time for self-care every day, 15 to 20 minutes. 
This is the Dr. Renee Frazier Show called Why Women. Thank you for listening. You can hear our shows at FrazierCommunications.com. Have a wonderful week ahead, and I'll see you again on the Dr. Renee Frazier Show.